0: Welcome to FinTech Insider Insights. I'm Ryan Garner. And I'm Laura Watkins. On today's show, we're going to be taking a bit of a deep dive into the world of digital identity. What is it? Why do we need it? And how is it changing? We'll also look at the future of digital identity and see whether it looks bright or even dystopian.
1: So last time you are on the show, you were talking about GDPR and how that gives consumers a lot more say on the use of their data online. Today, we want to take one step further and take a look at people's entire identities online. So before we get into that, to kick us off, let's take it right back to basics and probably the hardest question of all. Ryan, what is Identity.
0: Yeah. So when we think about our own identities, we think about all the things that define us. So this can be stuff that's easily classifiable. Like for me, I'm British, I'm male, I'm just a millennial, depending on which categorization you use. I'm a husband, I'm a father. But the reality is our identities are more complex than these kind of simple classifiable things our identity is much more fluid and dynamic and uh, we present different versions of ourselves in different social contexts and therefore our identity is is relational so for example at work people i interact with know me for what skills I have and what experience I bring to my job and the responsibilities I have. This is fundamentally different to how my wife and kids both interact with me and view me as a person. So our context has a significant bearing upon um, how we identify ourselves. In the physical world, we need to prove our identity in a variety of different contexts. And the classic example that is always used is opening a bank account in a branch. And, you know, we take passports or driving licenses or utility bills. And actually, one of the biggest use cases of a bank statement is to to actually prove your identity rather than kind of check your spending. But when I'm joining a sports club or applying for a job, then things like my uh, experience my interests my abilities they're what's most important to the process of creating that relationship with that particular organization
1: so the bank account example is is kind of interesting because when i was 16 i had my my first job and i needed to open a, a bank account in order to get paid but it's quite hard to prove your proof of address at the time my passport had a different address on it and obviously I was trying to open a bank account, so I didn't have a bank statement as a proof of address. And equally I was sixteen, I wasn't a bill payer, I didn't have a utility bill in in my name as a proof of address either. So the kind of rules around what counts and what doesn't count can sometimes be a bit tricky to get around when you don't fit into some of those categories
0: yeah exactly and this points to some of the problems that we have with identity because it is so fluid and it is so it changes according to a variety of different factors so um for example our water bill is in my wife's name and we got married what five or six years ago and it's still in her maiden name because they want um us to send our original marriage certificate to put it in her real name and like wow yeah we're not going to do that (laughs) it's the water company it's a utility i have no idea whether that is going to come back to us or not or even if it'll arrive so there's clearly a problem with identity and some process and operational difficulties for organizations getting that identity bit right
1: Um, and different levels of what they can ask you for that seems like a huge ask to ask for your actual marriage license in order to verify your water bill of all things
0: yeah and, it, it, you know, in other social contexts, so uh, we were putting our child um, through an application for a school. And because of the competition for places, it's done by catchment area these days. So they wanted to prove us to prove who he was. So they wanted a passport. Luckily, we had one for him. Uh, but they also wanted a proof of address. And. I've not put my uh, kid in charge of our utility bills (laughs) at the minute. (laughs) He's only four. But they wanted a a letter with his name and address on which we just didn't have. And so that made the whole process extremely difficult. How did
1: you get around that?
0: we just had to go in and say we don't have one this <laughs> and, is
1: ridiculous
0: or uh, we, we, we got what uh, his nursery to send us a letter in the post with his name and address on which basically said nothing so we could try and get something to, to that's
1: almost faking it right it makes the whole thing pointless
0: <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so again points to the some of the issues in this area
1: digital identity solve the problems that we've just been talking about, about all these kind of proof of addresses and printed kind of physical documentation and what is digital identity from the start?
0: Yeah, I think think it can and I I don't think we're there yet but I think Digital identity, and especially digital identity served through the kind of mobile phone, can really add a level of convenience for users trying to prove their identity and identity of their dependents. Definitely, there's just quite a lot of progress that we need to make to to make that a reality. Digital identity is, is really important. It's the missing layer of the internet. You know, the internet is an amazing thing, but in its conception, we weren't really thinking about... Uh, How do we identify people and businesses and organizations and governments on this amazing network of things that we have with the Internet? Historically, we've identified ourselves using kind of usernames and passwords and we've all bared the difficulties that come with that and managing multiple different passwords and making them all different is just a real, real pain. Since then, we've started to adopt things like federated social sign in. So, things like Facebook Connect. And this makes things more convenient and simpler for for users. And it does have its disadvantages as well, because especially with kind of Facebook Connect, I think a lot of people will be thinking twice about what they sign into with Facebook. I mean, I'm sure it's fine for um, a few different things that are kind of trivial. But would you sign into a service that has some really seriously sensitive information or uh, financial information uh, using your Facebook account? Probably not. You probably wouldn't be even allowed to from a a regulation standpoint. But from a trust perspective, then um, I think those companies like Facebook and and Google maybe have a a little way to go. But what's really driving uh, digital identity today is fintech and the processes around kyc and aml compliance and the development in this space is is moving quite quickly for those of our listeners that have read sarah Kaczynski's excellent report on onboarding on our pulse platform you can see all the people driving the innovation in this space and some of the great user journeys that some of the challenger banks and fintechs have have put together in terms of identifying new users and onboarding them very smoothly and quickly just via mobile. So digital identity as an experience is becoming much simpler.
2: Yeah, for sure. So um, uh, we talk about back in the day. I'm not that old, by the way, for anyone that's listening. Um...
0: (laughs) This is Emma Linley, who's a senior director of digital identity and money at Visa uh
2: so yeah so i mean i started out in digital identity in 2002 so i think that is is quite a while ago and really interestingly when when i started out looking at the identity space then i was working for a company that was at the time a marketing services company our ceo had an idea that identity fraud might be something that that might be big in the future and a small group of us took to market a product which interestingly with the the first sort of minimum viable product of that was done on a cd-rom which uh, some people may remember cd-roms but essentially back in the day digital identity wasn't really a thing there was a few companies out there that were doing electronic identity proofing Um, those were mostly the credit referencing agencies in the uk so you know call credit had only just started back in through 2002 you had experian and equifax And it was mostly related to perhaps banks, for example. So a bank might need to um, do the know your customer checks. Few online banking services were coming out at the time, and they needed to be able to electronically verify people. Um, And that was kind of the space that I was in. There was a few biometrics companies, but not many. You know, biometrics really were were things like, you know, at airports and, and things like that. They were, you know, they might be something that law enforcement w- would use, but they, you know, certainly we didn't have things like smartphones. So that sort of whole digital identity play hadn't really happened. And we were kind of predating mainstream use of social media. So even things like, you know, Facebook Connect that everybody knows of today, that wasn't something that was mainstream. So digital identity back in 2002 was really, um, like I say, you know, first versions were on CD-ROMs where it's really evolved to from them we've had obviously huge change of people using digital devices and that's really been the the big push you know you see businesses now moving commerce online online banking is now mainstream i mean i went into a bank the other day and I genuinely had no idea what to do. Um, and somebody had given me a check. And I was like, oh, no, I've got to take this check. I've got to go figure out what to do, you know, went into the bank, didn't know where to go. Um, so, you know, online banking is, is mainstream. But also as a result of that, what we've seen as well is fraud moving online. So, you know, identity fraud is now a mainstream thing. Fraud itself is the majority of it is is online, because no longer people are going into high street banks with a gun, because you go to jail for that sort of stuff. If you do you know, hack something and are able to get hold of some cash. Well, then you're less likely to go to prison. So, the fraudsters are all doing stuff online as well, and that's really where this big push has come from. A, we want to move services online because it's cheaper and more convenient. Um, we want to leverage the technology that's out there in in the market space, and so we need to make the ability to be for people to be able to present their real world identities in a digital form to do things conveniently online but we've also got this big kind of parallel thing of loads more fraud happening online as well so things have to be secure as well so continuing to
1: ask the question what is digital identity we also spoke to some amazing experts in this space and put the same question to them
3: what is digital identity what a question what a hugely loaded question this is Katrina Dow founder and CEO of Miko it's a, it's a little bit like saying what is a human what is an object? I I think one of the challenges that we have right now in this whole digital identity space is we kind of think that it's a thing and it's one thing, instead of understanding that actually the answer changes depending on the question and the context. So it's who am I in this particular context? So is it, me as a citizen right now because I'm trying to cross a border so that's a very different digital identity question to is it me as a patient and you're about to remove my kidney so making sure it's really me is a different question is it me shopping online when really you're asking not an identity question but you're asking an authentication question or an authorization question or is it is it me in my car where actually it's the identity of my car that's being recognized because I'm performing some task like 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 driving into somewhere where the what do you call it the registration plate is actually part of, of it. So I think the complexity of that is we ask it like
4: there's one answer and the answer is it depends. Well I think there's two views on digital identity. There's the consumer view and then there's also the online provider of digital services. This is Diane Joyce, CTO
1: for the Post Office Identity Services.
4: So for the consumer view, it's kind of my avatar out there in the digital world. It's how I'm represented in the digital world and the way I'd be represented in the real world. But Do you know, consumers don't want digital identity. I've never, ever come across anyone who says, must get me a digital identity. They want to buy the shoes. They want to go to the concert. They want to do something else. The digital identity really is just the key to unlocking the products and services online. So... I think when we talk about digital identity, I don't think the consumers really know what we're talking about, but it really is just their key to the door. From the provider view, it's the technology and the processes that identify the consumer so they know who it is, so they can reduce fraud, so they can target the consumer in a way that's appropriate for that consumer. It also gives the consumer access to products and services.
5: Uh, in my opinion, digital identity is the ability to securely verify someone's identity using digital mechanisms and not paper or plastic.
0: This is Vinnie Lingham, co-founder and CEO
5: of Civic. Uh, so getting rid of you know, eventually passports and driver's licenses and cards and just the, you know, the physical form factor around whatever represents your identity to whether it's a government or a bank or you know, just a local bar accepting an ID. Yeah, I think automation is where digital ID has the most um, impact when you can get to a hotel and just walk into your hotel room door without having to go out to the, the front desk and check in and give them your ID and your credit card, etc. Uh, if your room is ready, you should be able to go to your room. But right now, even with the what they call the, I think, um, all the different hotel chains have a different uh, name for it, but whatever, the digital key. Uh, for your key card for your own. you still need to go to the front desk to show your ID because they have to verify that it's you for legal reasons. And so we think that this is an interesting area.
0: So I really like Vinny's description of the hotel example there. It really brings to life some of the conveniences and benefits we as everyday people could get from a really well designed and really well functioning digital identity system. But one of the concerns is, are we giving too much away? Do hotels really need our passport information? And are we practicing the right level of data minimization when going through these customer journeys of entering a hotel or renting a car or whatever that might be that requires a form of identification?
1: Yeah. So I have a very good example of this. I mean, I think everybody's had their passport scanned when they register into a hotel or rent a car. And I guess to a certain extent, that makes sense. However, um, I tried to rent two kayaks the other weekend and was asked for a scan of my driving license. And I'm not entirely clear why. I'm not sure what they needed, whether it was just proof of my name or my photo in case I ran off with the kayaks or my address, my age. I don't know. Um, I was not aware there was an age restriction to take kayaks out um, or what they were planning to do with that data after the fact. It just seemed like an unnecessary step in the process.
0: Yeah, and there, there clearly needs to be some governance around this and some process that ensures that the customer or the end user is protected within this process. I think everybody wants the conveniences that have been talked about so far. But with that comes a responsibility to implement a digital identity system that protects people as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think people go with whatever's the most convenient and they don't always question it so I'm only questioning now why I did actually give over my driving license to rent some kayaks and I did it because I wanted to rent the kayaks and it was a step on the process that I had to get around you know you don't sort of question why but actually only after the fact you're like maybe maybe I should have why did they need that data what did I do it for
0: and that's right and that comes to trust and I think a lot of the times we can be very trusting. And we don't question some of the processes that we go through every day to rent kayaks or rent a car whatever it might be that we're that we're trying to do that requires the ID and I think Katrina Dow really articulated this very well in the chat I had with her the other week.
3: You know you've got the problem where you're signing up for something that's that's a pretty benign kind of service, and you and all of a sudden you're scanning your passport, you're scanning a biometric. Maybe you're entering your driver's license, maybe you are uploading a couple of bills and, you know, that might be because you want to rent, you know, someone's apartment for a week or you want to be part of some sort of ride sharing experience or or whatever the case may be. And so I think one of the huge problems for people right now is we've we've got into this habit of giving that stuff away instead of bringing the verification of that to the source. Uh, Last week I was in Adelaide with our development team. I checked into a hotel. They asked for the usual thing. Can I have your driver's license? They photocopied it. And when I was checking out, I saw it just sitting there, stapled to stuff, and I said, what are you going to do with that now? Because basically you have my entire identity, Mm -hmm. date of birth, where I live, credit card details. And they said, oh, look, we... We keep it in a cabinet for three months and then we shred it. And he said, did you know that under the Australian privacy law, you could ask me for this now and I have to give it back to you for you to destroy? And I said, no, I didn't know that and can I have it back? And so it's interesting that one of those problems also is that we don't even often know, me included, who's around this stuff all the time, we don't even know what rights we have once we've handed something over in terms of being able to take that back, either digitally or physically.
0: So let's bring this back round to convenience and trust. The obvious players here to make this a great user experience for everyone is the tech companies we use every day, the Facebooks, the Googles, uh, the Twitters, the Instagrams. Do we trust those types of organizations to verify who we are and be a provider and a source of our identity. What do you think, Laura? Like, Have you used single sign-on um, with any of these companies before?
1: I've used Facebook sign-in, but usually when it's most convenient and something that I'm not too fussed about. So I think my Spotify account might be linked to my Facebook and a couple of apps on my phone, but nothing serious. So if I think it's a particularly um, secure thing, I would use my email if I wanted it to be particularly, like, closed off, I wouldn't use my Facebook, which is odd because I know Facebook has a hell of a lot of data on me, but it, it's sort of a um, cultural thing in my head. I'm like, oh, I'd use social sign in when it's convenient and quick. I'm something I don't really care about. Anything else, I'd lock it to my email. Although, admittedly, my email is a Gmail account, so it's still giving my data to Google. So I don't really know what difference that makes, to be honest.
0: The concern I have with signing in with Facebook or Google or any of these particular services Is the reliance on these companies to identify who I am. They're effectively owning and centralizing a lot of information about me and then able to link that through my digital identity back to me. And whilst I don't believe that Google or Facebook are intrinsically bad companies, there are clearly some process problems they have with the governance of their data and we saw that earlier in the year with Cambridge Analytica and it's not in Facebook's interest to act in a negative uh, or harmful way to its customers of course not but the unintended consequences of data misuse or data leakage is a serious concern and I think it's raising trust questions uh, amongst the general population of uh, of social network users, the question is, how much do people really care? When I caught up with Emma. Lindley, uh, the other day, she had a really fantastic perspective on on this, and we talked about Facebook, and we talked about Apple, and the differences between the two.
2: I mean, arguably, they do do digital identity today. Um, you know, could you use your Facebook login to comply with KYC regulations and open a bank account just using Facebook login? No, so it's the depth at which I think that they're, you know, they're. Validating and verifying attributes. You know what we know with Facebook is they don't do any verification of the people that are actually sat behind it. So, you know, could you actually trust a Facebook login? You could perhaps for very when organizations obviously do to log in for certain services. But as I say, could you use it on its own to open a bank account? No, and the regulations wouldn't allow you to do that. So. is it a natural next step for them? I think the question I would have around companies like Facebook, particularly in light of what we've seen around Cambridge Analytica recently, is, and if we, if you get on the tube and you, re, you know, look at the back of any paper, or you know, I turned on the TV the other day, Facebook are doing everything they can at the moment to try and win back trust, user trust, um, because I think that that has been broken, and I think people are leaving Facebook in in droves because of all the stuff around Cambridge Analytica. So. I don't know if it is a natural next step for them because just going back to my point before, you need to have users, you know, and there has to be an element of trust, particularly around this thing around digital identity. You know, if a user is going to be like, I'm going to go and log into my bank with this particular service, they need to feel that there is some security there, you know, that there is the convenience there, but you know, that they're not going to be perhaps passing their data off to whoever.
0: In contrast to Facebook, we have Apple, and Apple's business model is not reliant on the use of data for personalization and advertising. And so in the past few years, we've seen them be very vocal about protecting their customers' privacy. They have a position in the market, which is one around customer protection, customer security, customer customer privacy. And that's a very different position in the market to what Facebook have at the minute. And they have that luxury at the minute and are able to differentiate from that point of view because their business model is about selling devices, not about selling data. So is Apple the right company to be pioneering and pushing forward a digital identity solution that everybody can use?
2: So Apple, I think, is a really interesting um, company, but a lot of their architecture is very closed. So, again, when I think about digital identity and kind of what that means, you know, it's openness, it's inclusion, it's all of those things. So I'm like, when you've got a closed infrastructure, how does that actually open things up to the market? And also as well, if you've only kind of got one player, how does that actually make the market, I suppose, you know, not fair not uh, you know not a monopoly and also digital identity is a is a huge thing of power if you give that to one organization you need to make sure that a change of ceo is not going to mean a change of how they use those digital identities and i guess that's the question that i would have it's all around governance
0: as we've heard facebook don't do much verification of who their users are and apple only take identity verification to a certain level of assurance. So it's only so far we can go with these tools. That's what's interesting about what's happening in fintech with the advancement of digital onboarding and KYC and AML checking done on the device. But is this just a process of digitization? Are we really rethinking how to do digital identity in a truly digital way? One of the interesting developments is in self-sovereign identity.
1: What is self-sovereign identity? How would you define it?
0: So the thing I like about self-sovereign identity is that it gives us an identity that we own. Currently, we just don't exist digitally. We only exist when we sign in to Amazon or Facebook or Google or whoever, whatever digital service that we're using at the time. And they recognize us for who we are through the identity they have on their systems. As soon as we leave that service and sign out, we no longer exist. So for us to be independent actors in the digital economy, we need our own identity. And that's effectively what self-sovereign means. It means I'm in charge and in control and own my own identity. Once we have our own self-sovereign identity, it opens up lots of options for us as digital citizens. For example, in Estonia, you can vote just on your mobile phone because of the strong digital identity infrastructure they've put in place there.
2: So self-sovereign identity isn't a new concept. It's a new terminology for a concept that's been around for a long time. There's been a lot of work uh, done over the years in the internet identity workshops, uh, sort of over the last seven, eight years, looking at this concept of allowing users to have more control over their personal data. What evolved out of that was a number of things, like personal data stores, personal data clouds, they were then called, what it's now latterly been called is self-sovereign identity. So this concept is not new. It's really got wings because it's gone on the back of the kind of blockchain hype. And now everyone's kind of going self-sovereign identity, it's this new thing, you know, it's not a new thing. Blockchain does give it uh, some elements that personal data stores didn't have. So there's some, particularly around some of the technical issues around uh, key revocation. Uh, So blockchain does have an answer to some of that stuff, but but self-sovereign identity itself isn't new. Essentially for me, self-sovereign identity is allowing users to have consent and control over their personal data. Where we think about organizations having control of data at the moment, this idea of self-sovereign is that the user has complete control over that data. And all of the pros and cons that comes with that. So obviously the pros of those are that, you know, you... As a user, you have complete consent and control over that data. So you would hope that it's not going to be misused. You know, if you allow an organization to have access to it, it would be for a specific reason. And you would then, from a consent and control perspective, you would perhaps have some kind of mechanism to say, well, I'm going to allow your organization to have control of, have access to this particular data for this period of time. And then, you know, I get, I regain control of it and you don't have it anymore. So um, that's, I guess, the pros The cons of that are if you think about you having, as an individual, complete control over anything. If you think about keys to your house, people often lose the keys to their house. And if you lost the keys to your digital identity, what would you do? Um, And I think what we are seeing in the self-sovereign movement and the people that are talking about it is some thinking around what would actually happen when people lose their keys Um, and I'm using the house key analogy, but in this analogy, it's digital keys, it's cryptographic keys. So they're starting to think about some of that stuff. For me, um, when I go back to, you know, my kind of inclusion hat on, when I hear some of the solutions to that, they're quite technical solutions. And I think I go back to my mum who can't use FaceTime and I go, well, how would we get my mum included who really struggles with some of the basic concepts of technology into using something like self-sovereign identity? So I think there's a lot of work that needs to still happen around user testing, usability, you know, the UI of these types of things to actually make them feasible for full inclusion when we think about digital identity.
3: My take on self-sovereign identity is that we're able to gather a whole range of different things that prove who we are in, in a range of contexts, and we're not reliant on any one single authority in order to prove who we are.
0: This is Katrina Dow, founder and CEO of MECO.
3: What's missing in a lot of self-sovereign identity conversations is the bridge that has to exist between trusted entities or authorities that you rely on to help you collect those proofs. So if my government recognizes I'm a citizen and gives me a birth certificate or a passport, and they are a trusted source, then I really need them to be part of this rich ecosystem as a relying
1: party to verify that about me.
4: To me, it's a bring-your-own identity.
1: This is Diane Joyce, CTO for the Post Office Identity Services.
4: It, it's basically where the user is in charge of their identity and they're, they're their own identity provider. No longer do they ask companies to do that for them. So, if you, if you think about what an identity provider is, we tend to register with them, get a set of credentials, and we provide a lot of information they go off in the background and check. So. In self sovereign identity, I don't give that information to anyone. I basically control my own identity. And it and it's generally uses a concept called decentralized ledgers, where I decide what information I'm going to share with people and how I'm going to share it with them. So there's the data minimization principles. I could give a bank a confirmation that I've got a passport, but I don't have to give them the passport. I don't have to give them all the details on the passport.
6: I think there's this idea of self sovereign identity. Uh, is really important.
0: This is Jamie Smith, Strategic Engagement Director at Evernim. I think most identities
6: or rather identifiers you're given are exactly that. They're given to you um, by your mobile phone company or your government or your employer and their numbers and letters and and passwords and so on that they they assign to you and you have to remember and use. But you can only use them in that context. And so they're, they're, if you like, administrative identities. Uh, The huge opportunity is to flip that and say, well, what if I could be in control of an identifier that's mine? That's a number that you know me by, organization, and that I can share things uh, with you using. And that we can start to be in control of our identities and actually own it in a way that wasn't possible before.
5: This is
0: Vinny Lingham, co-founder and CEO of Civic.
5: The the buzzword around self-sovereign identity is obviously... uh, (laughs) It's reaching, I think, an all-time high right now. Everyone thinks this is a the right way to go about it. I'm I'm still skeptical that self-sovereign identities are going to be what you know is used in society. Perhaps in an anarchist society, you could self-attest to who you are, and people will believe it. But in the current world today, where you have banks and regulators um, and whatever else ensuring that you know there has to be a, a a chain of attestations or at least confirmations that you are who you say you are having a self-sovereign identity and, and being able to make attestations about yourself without anyone else validating it is, is kind of a weak point, I think, in the chain. So I'm I'm a lot more skeptical on the, the, the term self-sovereign. Now, what people in the self-sovereign identity space are trying to do is actually interesting. I think the term self-sovereign is misleading because I, I don't think it actually works in society today. I mean, I, I could then go and assert that I'm a female age 23, and if I go to a bank to apply for a credit card uh, with the whole, and tell them my income, if it's all self-attested, I don't see how the bank is going to accept that. Yeah, it's, it's all good and well. Like if you want to go live in a society where you don't have, you know, regulars and governments and financial services and whatever else, it's probably okay.
0: So the contrast between Jamie and Vinny is an interesting one. Vinny's is very pragmatic in his outlook on the digital identity solutions that he'll adopt to drive his business. Jamie and Evanim's perspective is wrapped up more in an ideological perspective as well as a business opportunity. There's clearly a lot of merit in self-sovereign identity and being independent from other businesses and being in control of your own digital identity. So it's great to see businesses like Evanim driving that ideological agenda as well as a business agenda. The fact
6: that those are really just credentials that I should be able to manage and control are things, that that's the difference now. I think with self-sovereign identity, I can be uh, the, the source of my own credentials. They will come from third parties. They also come from other places like my friends and family and also myself. I can self-attest things just like in the real world. But what's new is the fact that I can be the person that initiates that relationship, initiates that connection and be in control of it. And so if I want to disconnect that relationship, I can do so. And just to to contrast it with the world I talked about a a minute ago, um, you know, traditional siloed identity or maybe a third party identity. If one of those organizations takes away my identity, I can't get into the services. You know, if my email provider locks me out for maybe bad reasons or just incompetence and I need to password reset another service, guess where the password reset goes to? It goes to my email. So I'm kind of locked out of everything. And that's this idea of digitally existing. If we can be the self-sovereign source of the identifiers, and with those identifiers, I can attach other bits of data, other credentials that are given to me, like those bits of paper, then I can present them. And the organization who's receiving them can be sure it really is me because it's my identifier. And I can present other things about me, like... My date of birth or my age or that i am uh, i am vegetarian or that i pronate when i run and those can be attested to by other
5: organizations we have taken the position that we're going to adopt whatever standards emerge we're just not going to be involved in you know setting up those standards we think that the communities are working on it. they're really smart they know what they're doing they have got lots of great ideas and when it eventually comes to fruition that there is a standard that the industry wants to adopt we will adopt it we, we, we're not focusing on that we're focusing on things like um, you know zero knowledge proofs and making sure that you could use your ID at you know vending machines or hotels or travel etc we're not focusing as much on the underlying unifying open standards framework that's required to make the industry move forward because we think that this has been going on for a long time 15 20 years and no one's gotten it right and no you know, there's this multiple industry bodies right now it's kind of a mess. And but, but when the industry figures out what they wanna do, and whatever standards emerge as the standards, we'll adopt and we will conform to those standards, but we're just not going to be the ones trying to fight the, the storm that's been r- raging for years.
0: So there's an interesting tension Imagine here. On the one hand, we've got self-sovereign identity, which is an open protocol that will be baked into the infrastructure of the internet that everybody can use. On the other hand, you have proprietary systems from some of the big tech giants. And I admire Vinny's standpoint on this. He's trying to build a business, he needs to get to a product to market quickly, and he's going to use the thing that everyone else is using. He's going to use the thing that works. And that's just good business sense. I also admire Evanim's approach on this, that takes a more ideological position that favours the customer, that takes the customer's side. And That's a really important stance to make in the market.
1: So it sounds like the biggest advantage to consumers
4: um, seems to be the control they have over the data that they give away. So I own my data. I get to decide what data I share and how I share it. I don't always get that choice at the moment. Often I give all my personal information over and unless I read all the terms and conditions, I'm not entirely sure what happens to it. I know under the new GDPR that they have to be explicit I'm still not sure that I understand exactly what, what's been done with it. So my data belongs to me. No longer do I have to give everyone that data. So there's not copies of my data sitting out there to be breached. So it's mine. I think the second thing is inclusion. There's a lot of people who don't have digital documents and can't get on, on the ladder. So if we could take them into an offline channel and give them Uh, bring your own identity by having someone vouch or verify that they are who they say they are. Maybe put biometrics on there so they have a way of proving who they are. I mean, this has been very successful in India. It now gives them an identity they can interact with to get services. Prior to that, they couldn't prove who they were. They couldn't get the services. So I think one of the benefits is that you could possibly
3: choose the proofs that you want in the context that that you need them. So that's one thing, you know. So we get away from the kind of huge problem that exists in the United States where, say, something like a Social Security number has been so overused and has been one of those uh, attributes that now puts people at risk because of, of you know, how many forms it's been added to, that it ceases to serve as a really important or unique identifier. Um, so I think the great thing about self-sovereign is that you can say, well, when I'm doing, you know, when I'm doing this, these are the kinds of proofs that make sense. But when I'm doing that, I might choose something
1: at a lower assurance level. However, there are also benefits to businesses from this, not least of which that they do not have to hold such vast amounts of data on all of us.
0: Yeah, and we heard a couple of months back in the GDPR podcast that we did about data becoming more of a liability rather than just a commercial asset. So the advantages for businesses around digital identity and the minimization of exposure to that risk is a really interesting one.
4: I think the first major one is they don't have to hold so much personal information about a person and holding personal information is actually a liability. So should you lose it, it's a big liability. So we don't necessarily want to hold lots of information about people. If that can be provided to us in real time, so much the better. I think it also reduces the friction on the onboarding process. Because no longer do we have to capture all this information and actually go out and check it. It will come to us checked. So it will be a case of what have you got available? Yes, we'll have this, this and this. That's great. Move on. You've, you've done what you need to do. So I think from a business point of view, those are probably the key benefits.
0: So I want to come back to this point about do people really care about the data information they're given away?
1: I would say that they didn't. But the headlines and the kind of aftermath of Cambridge Analytica has brought it to the fore a little bit more and people are starting to consider how much data they are giving away online and it's become a lot more of a mainstream topic of conversation. However, that conversation is only just beginning.
4: I don't think the revolution's really been held by the citizens though. I think it's more the tech people who are saying this is not the way to do it. And I think GDPR will make that even more interesting because... I don't know whether my Facebook account was given to Cambridge Analytics, but I certainly didn't agree that. So under GDPR, there would be a problem.
5: You can, you know, out of the 2.5 billion people using Facebook, I mean, I'm assuming they're using Facebook because they, they like what Facebook offers. If there was something better, would they switch? I don't know. Uh, I think a lot of people don't care about their identity and their privacy and their data. The fact, that they give it all to Facebook and they give it to so many companies around the world that are taking the data and using it. I just don't think that people care enough about it you know, individually. I think mean, collectively we kind of do as a society, we have concerns. But um, I just don't think that uh, individually it's enough of an issue for people. And if people want a service with, that's connected to 2 billion people and family and friends around the world, do they value their, their privacy more than they value the, the, the connectivity to others? I'm not sure.
3: I think a big part of the challenge here is... Um, you know, it's hard enough to get people to understand what identity is, what digital identity is, what self-sovereign identity is, because largely just the education around how valuable your identity is and why you want to protect your identity, that's not something people talk about, you know, at the pub, yeah? It's, It's not kind of something where you sit down over a beer and you go, oh, you know, have you thought about how valuable your identity is?
0: And another key question here is making identity valuable for everybody. Now, we know that in Silicon Valley and with tech companies generally, there is a bit of a diversity issue. It's been widely reported. And in digital identity, we need to make sure there is diversity because the systems we design now need to work for everybody. The great news is there are not-for-profit organizations coming into this space Emma Linley is on the steering group for the Women in Identity organisation.
2: Yeah, so uh, we started Women in Identity about 18 months to two years ago. And really, the reason why we started it is because we started to see a whole bunch of research coming out of places like MIT that's starting to show that there are gender and racial bias creeping into technology. And I I think that's not a new thing, but particularly in this space of Identity. Um, So, for example, you know, facial recognition where you get um, error rates of 35 percent, increases of 35 percent when you get to a female face of color. So there was a group of us, um, Pam Dingle from Microsoft, Colette D'Alessandro from Ping Identity. And we kind of got together and said, hey, we think we want to try and push something forward in this space. And uh, we have, since then, we've had a whole bunch of meetups. Our latest one is going to be on the 6th of September, um, kindly hosted by HSBC in London. And we're really trying to promote gender and inclusion, uh, gender diversity, racial diversity in digital identity and also inclusion. We're trying to get more women and more diverse range of people involved in this STEM field of digital identity. You know, it's, it's a relatively new space. We wanna get more leadership roles. So, you know, we wanna see more women in leadership roles in in this space and, you know, more diversity um, across the board, you know, both both from a gender and, and uh, a racial perspective. And also we really wanna focus on inclusion. So we want to get people thinking about you know, digital identity is one of those things. It needs to be inclusive. You, know, you don't want to be excluding certain types of people because you know perhaps they've got a disability or something like that. So inclusion is absolutely paramount to digital identity and we really want to get it onto people's radar. So when they're thinking about doing their coding, doing their testing, they want to be thinking about these things. I think because if you think about digital identity think about identity as a whole so let's just think about the groups of people at the moment who are excluded and it's you know everywhere 1.1 billion people that are excluded from having things like healthcare you know, uh, things like access to, uh, you know, schooling and education. So some of those basic needs, those people are excluded because they can't get identity documents, for example. So that's a kind of, you know, a real world um, example. If we take that and transpose that into digital identity, so we end up with all of those people excluded again. So, you know, they wouldn't be, get, be able to get access to financial services. They wouldn't be able to get access to basic health care. They wouldn't be able to get access to to education, what we don't want to do is take the the problems that we've got in the real world and just magnify them in the digital world. So we've got a website, uh, it's www.womeninidentity.org, and we're also on Twitter, which is Women in ID.
0: Obviously, the tech giants are a global phenomenon. But aside from them, ideas about identification usually differ from country to country if we start looking at the rest of the world where are the emerging success stories in digital identity so what are different countries around the world doing from a governmental perspective to drive the adoption and development of digital identity
3: yeah look we've we've had we've had a bit of a bumpy road here in australia we've we've had a program that was was uh, overseen by the federal government it's had a couple of different name changes we've had uh, some tension between our federal government and our state governments, where and also our taxation department. So I think I think that also speaks to this whole issue of who's in this identity space. And so there's, well, there's an ongoing attempt for us to have um, an identity provided at a federal government level. Some of the states um, have been able to move really quickly because they're interested in issuing things like a digital driver's license, which is obviously a really powerful form of identity, and then. Some of the government departments, because of the benefits of being able to get that identity layer right, are also trying to pursue that. So, there's been some criticism here in Australia that we've taken um, maybe some of the worst aspects of of what was pioneered in the UK and and tried to repeat some of those um, mistakes. There is a lot of contention right now here in Australia because of a, of a database um, known as um, My Digital Record, which is a health record that's been created um, about you, not by you, but that obviously relies heavily on being able to identify you. And the, there's a lot of um, tension in the press here right now around people being able to get access to that record, decide whether or not they want to opt out, whether or not they can edit those records, um, correct those records. Um, So for a relatively small population, we've got a lot going on in this space right now. Um, Add to that open banking and some changes potentially around the way data is collected uh, off the back of a report that our Treasury did last year
4: and it's an
3: interesting market to be in.
4: Everyone's looking at it. There's there's a model out there somewhere and it's understanding how that can be used in an interoperable way. So I think they're all morphing the same way. I think compare them to Estonia. Estonia's light years ahead. They've got 1.4 million people. They have the ability to change their legislation like that, which is often one of the reasons we find digital identity difficult is because technology changes so fast regulation does not and we have big private sector companies who are bound by regulation so I think that's one of the key challenges all of these governments are going to face they need to be able to change the regulatory environment much quicker than they can at the moment. Estonia is a really interesting um, that's becoming a private public partnership so it started out with the government um, producing an ID and actually I got myself an e-resident ID because you're able to. Even though I wasn't resident, I just wanted to go through the process. So the government there is very open. It's about transparency. And so they've designed a digital government. I mean, I don't know whether you know, but in Estonia, I can ask the government what data of mine they've looked at, why did they look at it and how did they use it? So that that transparency is really important. They've designed that from the very top down, everything is about transparency. So the government has access to your data, but has to tell you, not ask you, but tell you. And then you can go back and look and see what they did with it.
1: So the Estonian example is really, really interesting and a completely different way of looking at it. But it's a really tiny country. What is happening in the, in the bigger countries around the world? What about, what about China? What's happening there?
0: Well, China has a very different approach to identity. And is rolling out a social scoring mechanism, which if any of the listeners here have seen Black Mirror, you'll know what I'm talking about, where your actions online and in real life can impact your social score. And they can do that because they are centralizing data across the variety of platforms that exist within China and pulling together that data around a single identity. And digital identity is a key part of making that social scoring mechanism work.
2: So if I look at what's happening in China, they have built a completely centralised system. They're building lots and lots of services on top of it. You know, they're linking biometrics into it. On the plus side of that, what that is creating is a huge amount of convenience for users. You know, we look at all of the videos of kind of, you know, WeChat pay and, you know, you can do all of these things and everything happens in the app. And, you know, I can just then converse with my friends and everything else. But if we look at, you know, there's some of those services, they're all kind of linked into this digital identity infrastructure, which is a kind of centralized pot of information. Um, and on the, the kind of flip side of that, you know, I, I saw something the other day and somebody had said, well... I've just got onto a train in, in China and as something's come on over the tannoy saying, if you misbehave on this train, then it will affect your, your social score your social scoring system and that has been underpinned by their digital identity so if anyone's seen that black mirror episode you know where the social score effectively affects everything you know if your social score goes down so so for example you're in china you misbehave on that train because you've the government have got this kind of centralized pot of information you know your score could go down that could mean then perhaps that you might not be able to go and rent the flat that you want to go and rent so there's a huge amount of implications of who has control of the digital identity. On the plus side, massively convenient, you know, but on the flip side that, you know, you, you've got to think about some of the other things that could be happening. Um, I have a really pragmatic view uh, on these things. You know, every country will take their their own kind of approach to these things. And it's whatever works for that particular country.
3: Well, it's really it's really interesting that, that you know, the last question was Estonia. Next question is China, right? So, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't have two more different or contrasting approaches yeah so one is saying radical transparency and the ability for you to know what's happening anytime around your information your identity the other is a very paternal approach where kind of state knows better and um, you know there's that talk of 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 that incentivization they're calling the china game where you know, you kind of, you're you're trapped in almost a version of the uh, Truman Show, you know, earning points for being a model citizen, and somebody deciding what model citizen means, you know, how you behave with family, how you behave at work, how you manage money, you know, whether or not you put your rubbish out at time, you know, there are all, all of these different parameters. And so the question is, what will that sort of nudge and reward, you know, what kind of society is that, is that going to result in? I've had some really great conversations with some of my academic colleagues at universities in China and they say the very ideas that are legal and protective in Europe are totally against the law here. You know, we read things about GDPR or the freedoms that citizens have or the rights To protect their data and information or to opt out of something and those conversations aren't even possible here
1: on the first of our insight shows we were taking a deep dive at gdpr it was about to come into law and we were really really excited about it to hear from katrina that the idea that that wouldn't even be entertained in china that it would literally be against the law to know what data is being used about you how and having control over it to me is pretty terrifying
0: yeah, but back to Vinny's point, you know, he was talking about whatever works, works for the Chinese market. We're not Chinese, we're, we're not immersed in the culture there. And if that works for them, then great. It does sound terrifying to me. And it would be interesting to hear some of the stories coming out of China about how that's working for them. But as Emma was talking about before, there are a lot of conveniences to it as well in how you can get by in life with super simple digital experiences that are fully integrated into some of the platforms like WeChat and Alipay and things like that. But for me, and I think for a large majority of people that live in in Britain and some of the more Western countries, I think this would just freak people out. I think one of the other things that's worth mentioning here is the strength of social control that comes with a social scoring mechanism like this and it's really interesting to observe how people change their behavior when they're being watched and surveyed like that even from a young age i remember i was at home watching my kid play in the in the living room and he's young and he's being very creative he's making up stories between some of the toys that he's got and i just stood there in the doorway just watching him like mesmerized just really intrigued by what he was doing and as soon as he saw me he stopped doing what he was doing and did something more normal and so to me that that really exemplified the power of a more Senior person, more authoritative person like a parent or a government watching over someone and then changing their behaviors. And so, with a system that is so pervasive in, in how it's watching you, I do worry about how that shapes everyday behavior and how that flattens individualism and how we are able to express ourselves.
1: So that idea of kind of cultural regression and and the sort of big brother society where everyone feels like they're being watched and and kind of alters their behavior accordingly is is kind of scary. And it's looking ahead to the future. There seems to be a a utopia or a dystopian future. And uh, there's a sort of fork in the road as to which direction we can go in. On the one hand, you've got Estonia. On the other hand, you've got the Chinese social scoring model where are we heading? What does the future look like?
0: You're right. There is this kind of fork in the road. And when we spoke to some of the experts that we interviewed, they had some really interesting perspectives of what that future might look like. And
6: that's what's really exciting about self-sovereign identity, because it's not really about identity. It's about the relationships that can be formed around the individual. And I think the Facebooks and the data brokers and the large corporates who rely on data business models will evolve like any big transformation, some will die, some will see the new opportunity. But I think, I think we'll still, you know, we there's a need for those things. I want to be able to share my photos and so on. But can't I do it where I'm in control and managing it, and I can manage relationships, um, and it's not a third party as an intermediary? I think that's I think that's will be the biggest shift. We'll start to see new types of organization help us and do things with us and for us rather than to us. You can imagine a world in which. Right now, if I'm a car manufacturer and I want to sell a car, I try and segment the, organi- the segment the, uh, my customer groups and say, you know, the, these people giving off these signals in the market, and I want to try and get to them at the right point, try and drive customer engagement. Um, you could imagine a world in which, and there's lots of very low quality signals in there. I might have just bought a car. So trying to now sell me a car is a terrible idea, waste of your advertising money, and it's irritating for most people. Well, in this world, I can now declare to the market that I drive 8,000 miles a year. I need three car seats in the back. um, It's got to be silver. And it's got to fit in this type of garage of these measurements. Uh, And by the way, I've got, you know, I've had a pre-approved loan from from my bank. uh, And I'm in the market. Notice about that, by the way, you don't need my name. You don't need to know where I am. You don't need to know any other things about me. You just need to know that they are good quality signals. And I think brands will eat up the opportunity to serve those customers uh, in new ways. And I think marketing and advertising will be transformed if we can make that happen. And I think this new relationship will make it possible.
3: started with me seeing Minority Report, you know, walking out of a sci-fi film more than a decade ago, standing on the corner in front of the cinema, you know, looking up to the sky and thinking... Wow, if the world is gonna be like that in the future, if that's the future of data, if that's the future of identity, I'm not sure that's a world I wanna be part of. I really wanna be involved with shaping what that looks like. And then, you know, just putting that idea to the back of my mind for literally, you know, almost a decade. And I kind of had a go at it in two thousand and seven when I was working in financial services and then dropped it again. And then in twenty twelve I just sat down and wrote the manifesto and you know, we're here, like we're, it, it just literally started as, a, as a, an idea, a concept around the idea that you and I and everyone on the planet should get equity and value for the information we share and we're still here making it happen. I think there has to exist a trusted data ecosystem. I mean, I can't see us moving forward and and having the full benefits, certainly in a European context of a single digital market, lowering the friction of people being able to cross borders for work or tax or education or health or any of those things, unless we can find a way for that ecosystem to be first trusted and we probably need regulatory drivers for that, which I think in Europe certainly um, GDPR helps with that. The second thing is we've got to have a commercial model. Without a good commercial model, some of these things are just a great idea. But if we can't build in the right kind of incentives for enterprise and government to participate, where they can act as both a custodian and also have commercial benefit, then we know we're just never going to get them to the table. And then the third thing is we really need really simple technology that is um, easy and convenient for people to use where they can be confident, hey, they have some legal protection. There is uh, a relying um, commercial model behind this where they can trust where those proofs come from. And third, it's really a simple thing for them to do, you know, on on a phone, online, whatever the case may be. Um, and I and I really am confident that it is possible for that type of ecosystem to emerge and for it to be um, commercially viable, which also leads us into some of the interesting stuff that we're doing in the technology space, uh, around either zero knowledge proofs or the ability once you have a trusted and verified uh, identity attributes, um, the way that you can then protect that information so that you could still use it every day, but you're using it by someone being able to query, you know, whether you're over 18 as opposed to giving away your date of birth. A simple explanation of a zero-knowledge proof is that I have a secret. And I am able to prove something about that secret without giving that secret away. So a really simple version of that is one use case that we often talk about, which is getting into a nightclub. So at the moment, it often means giving up something like your driver's license that may put um, your address and a whole host of things at risk. And so really, the question is, are you old enough to enter this place um, or not? And so the secret might be your date of birth, but what you want to be able to reveal is that somebody that can be trusted has already checked that and verified that. And therefore, in a really simple way, they can vouch for that and and give you a yes or no without giving up that secret.
5: I I think I'm I'm optimistic for the long-term future. In the short term, I don't think much changes, especially in technologies. You've got technologists tend to have a very extreme view of things. And that's fine because this is how innovation happens. But It happens at the edges. But they have this edge case sort of extreme view of the world needs to look like the way they want it to be when they don't actually have, aren't really in touch with normal people and understand what normal people want. And and so I think you have this huge disconnect. And this happens every single time and every single technology cycle. It happened in the dot-com days. It's happening again now where there's a huge disconnect between what the rest of the world wants and what they value and what their, how their values are placed and what technologists and people who are forward-thinking think that the world should be. I'm just not sure whether the, the values gap gets bridged easily in this case, because what you really are asking people to do is set aside the convenience factor, in the case of identity, for um, valuing things which they may not care about as much as the extremes in technology do. So like, hey, I care about privacy, I care, but other people don't. I care about um, security of my data. Other people don't. It's just it's it's, it's quite frustrating that, that that you know people don't understand that not everyone shares the same worldview. So if you want to have a worldview that's consistent, you have to at least look at what what does the average person want? What do people want in general? Uh, and, and are you an edge case? So a lot of technology developers they forget that they're an edge case, and or or at least them and the people that they hang out with are edge cases. The, the rest of the world doesn't work
2: that way. I think countries that do not figure out how to create a digital identity infrastructure will get left behind. Um, I think they will really struggle with digital growth. I think they'll really struggle with making the cost savings that digital growth kind of underpins. I genuinely think that they will get left behind. Um, We will see other countries Being able to push things forward quicker um, and and that, candidly, is one of my concerns with the UK. We're just not moving quick enough. You know, I think government needs to have some involvement um, in digital identity infrastructure. Do they need to have control? Absolutely, 100% not. But they certainly need to be a stakeholder in whatever services are created and that's where we see it working best, you know, from a utility perspective, where a user can go, I can do my tax return. I can also open a bank account, you know, and so that's why it needs to be a public private sector um, collaboration. I also think, you know, having sat through a lot of the user testing I've sat through, people still Believe it or not, people still trust government. And and this is the interesting thing, you know, when I kind of see people make statements like, well, nobody trusts government anymore. And I'm like, well, I've sat through lots of user testing and I've seen users say, well, actually, I do trust government. You know, I know that they've got a lot of my data, you know, and actually I trust them to to do some of this stuff. So I think they absolutely 100% have to be a stakeholder at the table. They don't have to be the owners and controllers of identity. I don't necessarily see digital identity as a a thing. I kind of think it's like the unsexy stuff. Like if you were thinking about building a house, right? And you need to put in like the foundations and you need to put in the plumbing and, you know, the kind of electrics that's what digital identity is. It's like the foundations, it's the plumbing, it's the electrics. it's the not very sexy stuff. I need to apologize to anybody that's a plumber or an electrician, but it's the kind of, you know, but it's the stuff that if you don't have it in there, the house just can't be built and things can't work. And so that's kind of my view on it. You know, we need to have it so we can build the house. We can build all of the services on top of it. We can allow people to, you know, make doctor's appointments and access their health records, get access to basic, you know, basic financial services, you know, people talk about the 1.1 billion people that are excluded. You know, we have those problems here in the UK. People don't have passports. They don't have driving licenses. They can't get access to bank accounts. You know, if you have a digital identity infrastructure, an inclusive digital identity structure, you would be able to allow those people to have access to basic bank accounts. You know, you'd be able to, you know, book things online securely. You know, you'd be able to, you know, speak to your insurance company securely. So, it's the house, it's the things we can build on top of it. That's the future and it's, that's the stuff that's really interesting. That's the stuff that's really going to build economies and that's where if we don't have the digital identity infrastructure, we're going to lose out as an economy.
4: I think I'm a total optimist. I always start from the position of, here's what I want to do. I'm often met with blank looks or, oh, we can't do that, it's not possible. I see that as the starting position to move to, it is possible and we can. And I think working with the right people, the right environments, we can do anything. And I'm sure I'm a pain to some of my supply chain, but we also evolve things very quickly. So yeah, I think the future is bright.
0: Digital identity is developing faster than ever. There's an explosion of new businesses operating in this space. Governments too are playing an important role but clearly the concept of identity is a complex and fluid one, which is shaped by context and those we are engaging with. How we shape digital identity systems that work across different areas of our lives and that work for everyone is an important question. Getting this wrong could mean certain groups of society being denied the digital services the rest of us benefit from. There's also the question of control, Tech companies we all use today provide digital seamless experiences. But are their proprietary closed systems truly fit for purpose and working in the best interests of everyday people? Government and business partnerships are critical to the development of digital identity systems. In China, we're seeing the rollout of a social scoring system using data collected from centralized systems from leading platforms like Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. In the West, we're seeing slower progress but increased regulation that protects the customer. Self-sovereign identity is seen as an antidote to the downsides of centralised digital identity and the collection of personal data. However, there is a lot of work to do to ensure the user experience of decentralised self-sovereign identity is a slick and easy one for end users. Estonia provides a peek into the future. Being able to vote on your smartphone from the comfort of your own home could increase participation in the democratic system. And generally, understanding and owning your digital identity means that getting things done day to day becomes much easier as the friction of paperwork and process falls away. This episode was hosted by me, Ryan Garner, produced by Laura Watkins and Pet Barisha and edited by Michael Bailey and Holly Blackson. Thanks to Emma Lindley, Diane Joyce, Katrina Dow, Finney Lingham and Jamie Smith. 11FS, the people who brought you this podcast, transform businesses and frankly, get shit done. To find out what we can do for you, visit 11FS.com or email hello at elevenfs.com If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast client and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for more exclusive content. Thank you for listening.